This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The battle over the safety of Colorado's oil and gas wells and who should regulate the industry continues. In April, an explosion that killed two people in Firestone north of Denver was blamed on a leak in a line from a well. After that, Governor John Hickenlooper ordered the oil and gas companies to inspect thousands of wells and lines statewide. I'm joined now by Matt Lepore, director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. The agency regulates the industry, and he joins me from his office in Denver. Director, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. The oil and gas companies have identified and inspected thousands of wells and flow lines across the state. And these flow lines are small underground pipes at active and inactive drill sites. How many of these lines were found to be leaking or pose a safety risk? The number of leaking flow lines is approximately 400. And those are lines that failed an integrity test. So part of the project here uh, was to identify the beginning point of every flow line segment and the end point of every flow line segment. What happened at Firestone was that there was a flow line connected at a well, and the end point of that flow line was not connected. So identify beginning point, end point, and then pressure test that line to make sure it holds fluids. So when I talk about 430-odd Uh, wells that failed that integrity test. That's what we're talking about. If I can add, out of about 22,000, 23,000 wells that were inspected and uh, about 124,000 flow lines. Do people need to be concerned about these wells? Should they be concerned, especially in the aftermath of Firestone? The wells have risks associated with them. Should they be concerned about another Firestone incident? I think not greatly. The steps we took in the immediate aftermath really were intended to get a handle on the two most immediate things that we saw in the in the aftermath of Firestone. One I've touched on, which is this idea that there's a beginning point and an ending point. The second is that at Firestone, the line was supposed to have been abandoned. What we found was that they had left coming up out of the ground what we call the riser. So that's the rigid piece of pipe that comes up out of the ground. And when they abandoned the line, rather than remove that riser, they left it there. You connect to the well, there's pressure on that line. If something's going through that line, it goes out into the environment, which is what happened at Firestone. Mm -hmm. To eliminate that chance, we, we made the operators go back and cut off all of those old risers below ground. How many, was this in, in conjunction with the oil and gas producers themselves? Were, were they doing this uh, these inspections on their own? Were there members of your agency working with them? We did work with them. We worked closely with them. Um, we embedded our field inspectors or our environmental inspectors or our, our engineers were working side by side with operators. We assigned them to a specific operator. As part of that being embedded, they carried out detailed inspections. And as far as that goes, we were able to uh, witness about 14% of the, of the wells, that 23, 24,000 wells, and about 12% of the different locations that the operators worked on. So 23, 24%, that's around 3,200 wells. How many inspectors do you have overall uh, with your agency? 
Our field inspection unit is 30 folks. Uh, in this case, we augmented those 30 with some of our engineering and some of our environmental staff. Rough numbers, about 45 people were in the field. But do you feel that 30 inspectors are adequate given the number of wells in the state? Uh, it's a recurring question. Um, we looked at six other states, and Colorado fell right in the middle in terms of numbers of active wells per inspector. It's all something of a, of a of a resource allocation question. Now, would the state be safer if there were more inspectors? Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll answer you this way. Um, it's really hard to measure things that haven't happened because COGCC inspectors have done their job. You know, we know there will be spills. We want to minimize spills. We want to have spills promptly reported and promptly cleaned up. I think overall, and I know after April 17th, this is harder to say uh, and maybe harder to hear, uh, but overall, the industry has a pretty good track record. And April 17th was the date of the Firestone explosion, correct? That's right. We hear rumblings that there may be additional recommendations for regulating the oil and gas industry coming from the Hickenlooper administration in the next couple of weeks. Does the uh, COGCC, the uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, uh, know what type of regulations are coming down the line? And are they uh, intended for the flow line issue? Yeah, I think that the governor uh, and his staff are, are still focused on Firestone and ensuring public safety. It, I don't I don't want to get out in front of the governor, but I think we've probably identified a couple of changes to those flow line rules. I think we will seek to maybe increase the staffing. And does that mean going to the state legislature and asking for an increase in your budget? Yes, yes, it does. And we would propose to do that. The governor also said after Firestone that he wanted all of the state's flow lines mapped so residents and local governments know where they actually are. Has that been done? The notice to operators did not result in a map. If you think of a map in the sense of I can trace the path of the flow line from its beginning point to its ending point. We wanted whatever work we did to be done quickly, and we knew there was no way that the mapping could be done in, in the time frame we were looking at. We are still talking about mapping flow lines. It's important to understand we're talking about, number one, a lot of flow lines, as you can see from the numbers that were inspected. Number two, a lot of data to be reported by a lot of different operators. Would it provide useful information to people, or, or is it simply too complicated to, to figure out? The group that this information is useful and most vital for are people who dig into the ground, foundations of homes, other utilities, etc. So having a place where we can have the best information available to those excavators is important and valuable, and I think that's the direction to move. So that data would be less for the homeowners, but more for the contractors or those constructing the homes. Yeah, and I certainly understand the, the potential residents' desire to understand what's in their neighborhood, but I think if we satisfy the first issue there, that information, some form of that information, would be available to the residents, too. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Matt Lepore. He's director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. A fatal explosion last April in Firestone heightened concerns about the safety of oil and gas wells in Colorado and the debate over how much control local governments should have over where they're located. Beyond the immediate safety concern that came up with Firestone, we often hear concerns that drilling is simply too close to where people live and work. How far can the state really go in balancing these two interests? Well, I think you've put your finger on, you know, kind of the the core of what we've been grappling with, really, I mean, during my tenure for the last five years. It is, at some level, a classic kind of land use conflict. We have adopted lots of rules over the last five years to try to address that conflict, but, you know, we're, we're certainly not at the end point. There is a role for local governments, and local governments continue to kind of explore what they can do under their powers. One of the things we've promoted for local governments is long-range planning with operators. When that developer comes in and says, this would be a nice place for a subdivision, and I want to build 600 homes here, the local governments have got to be aware that there is a mineral estate underneath the ground that likely is severed from the surface, that somebody is going to come along one day want to develop those resources. I want to talk briefly about the distance the state requires between new wells and existing buildings. Uh, currently, it's 1,000 feet for big facilities like hospitals and schools and, and 500 feet for a home. We're going to talk in a minute about how local governments can regulate where new homes can go, but I want to touch on this balance of power. Tell us, in your opinion, how that balance between state and local governments actually plays out. The simplest way to say it is that local governments have land use authority, and the state has uh, the authority to regulate the technical aspects of oil and gas. Another way to say that is downhole issues. But that downhole does extend to where wells are located. So we talk about the spacing of wells and the, the, the number of wells um, because that does directly tie to getting the resources out of the ground. So I think that's the point at which the question is the most murky. Local governments have asked and others have asked if I can regulate where the marijuana outlet is, why can't I regulate the well goes. If I can have a residential zone and an industrial zone, why can't I make the oil and gas be in the industrial zone? And the short answer to that question is that those other uses don't have an attached property right. Uh, When somebody acquires minerals, part of what they acquire is the right to access the minerals from the surface above the minerals. Uh, With specific respect to distance between wells and homes, we regulate the oil and gas industry, not the home builders. So we can say to the operators, you may not get closer than X to an existing building. We cannot say to the home builder, you may not get closer than Y to that existing well. That part does rest with the local governments. But but, but there's still the rub there. I mean, a lot of communities are still trying to limit oil and gas development. I mean, a citizens group in Broomfield wants to raise the distance to a quarter mile between wells and homes. Uh, The town of Erie is changing how it deals with violations of its public health code by oil and gas companies. 
The city of Thornton, north of Denver, is working on a proposal to increase the distance between wells and homes from 500 feet to 750 feet. Matt, your office, via the Colorado Attorney General, recently sent a letter to Thornton warning that state law will preempt their proposed regulations in several ways. Will the COGCC take the city of Thornton or any city right now to court over this issue? It's absolutely the last choice, last resort. Um, and, and the letter to Thornton really said, you know, we do have concerns. Um, some of these issues have already been to the court, all the way to the Supreme Court, and we think are fairly clear and, and well decided. But um, the letter said, let's, let's continue to talk about this. That's really what the letter said. Before we would decide to go to court, if that were where we were, I think we are interested in seeing how cities, counties now apply these rules once they've adopted them. So it's one thing to have a rule on the book that says the setback is 750 feet, which is greater than the state's 500. It's another thing to deny a permit on that basis. So most likely it's a wait and see. Um, And if Thornton in this example were to actually say to an operator, we will not allow you, we will not issue you you the, the local permit that you need because you are not 750 feet away. Then we'll, we'll, we'll visit that scenario when we get there. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you for having me. Matt Lepore heads the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, was in your face and unapologetic. That wasn't a fluke, according to our next guest. CU Boulder professor Ben Teitelbaum studies white nationalist culture. And in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, he writes the rally is evidence of a larger trend. He says white nationalism is moving from, quote, accommodating critics to ignoring them. Ben, welcome to the program. Nice to be with you, Nathan. White nationalists still want countries to protect and promote their, their, quote, white identity. That hasn't changed. So how have they been accommodating critics up to this point? Well, they've been doing their best to to fit into, let's say, an identity, a posture that mainstream society is likely to take seriously. Uh, once upon a time, uh, Nathan, really in the 1980s, 1990s, white nationalism really exploded around decadent youth subcultures like skinhead style, hooliganism, things like that. Uh, brought a bunch of people together, but it did not really advance a political cause that well. And a lot of activists in these scenes today are looking at that history and saying it didn't help us. Uh, and for many of the past decades, they've been trying to get as far away from anything offensive, rough-looking, rough-sounding uh, as, as best they can with the hope of, of maybe someday breaking into the mainstream. But Charlottesville did have that on full display, the, 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 the costumes, the flags, the, the very offensive things. So how does Charlottesville show that, that this is changing? So the the fact that in in Charlottesville we saw yes some some of this this kind of old guard uh, neo Nazi KKK uh, paraphernalia slogans organizations and so on the fact that we saw them alongside sectors of white nationalism who have been trying to change themselves who have been a, a obsessed in some cases with this goal of moderation of of mainstreaming 
that is the bigger story here is that we've seen a trajectory for so many years uh, with a big section of the scene toward moderation, toward becoming better. And in Charlottesville and, and really in the, in the weeks and months leading up to it, we've seen that trajectory shift a little bit where there is less and less concern with aspiring to a more tidy, more wholesome ideal. What's emboldening this, this from this happening? Well, according to a lot of the activists themselves, they they will name Donald Trump. Uh, they will name Brexit. They will look at uh, the rise of quote unquote alternative media sites, uh, alternative news sites online. Uh, all of these figures, all of these expressions that don't in fact aspire to be more tidy, that don't try to strive for an ideal of being more intellectual, more articulate, less offensive, less aggressive. All of these rough-sounding actors have been rough-sounding and still made political progress. And for that reason, uh, these uh, these white nationalists look at that success and say, well, maybe maybe there is a future for for our cause where we don't have to try and live up to other people's ideals, where we don't have to moderate ourselves, where we don't have to uh, uh, really police the language we use. Maybe we can relax a little bit and trust that our ideas carry currency and that a, a sizable portion of the population likes what we're saying and might might rally behind us. But again, that's that seems to be kind of a false equivalency. We're seeing companies, we're seeing, uh, you know, pull websites down and take down music from streaming services. We have widespread condemnation from a bipartisan group of people, including the public, who say this is not okay. So how does how does that square with what you're saying? Well, they could be wrong in that in that assessment. The, the, and the important the, the, thing, the white, the white nationalists, nationalists could be, could be. They, they could be wrong in, in, in thinking that, in fact, society has fundamentally appreciably changed such that they – they can now uh, be unhinged in the public square. That that may not be the case, but it's important to note also, as we follow this history, as we follow this this path of, you know, surrounding themselves, rallying around skinheadism, feeling bad about it, moderating, and now maybe turning away from moderation, uh, that Charlottesville could itself be a watershed moment. This could be a time, a moment in history where uh, white nationalism regains uh, its its status in, in the public eye as being absolutely intolerable and that anybody who touches it or comes close to this is going to back away. That There's plenty of reason to think that, that that could be the case given everything that you just mentioned, Nathan. I want to note you mentioned Donald Trump and the presidency of, of Donald Trump. Um, he has spoken on the violence, though, though not in the clearest of terms. He mm -hmm. continues to say there is blame on both sides with Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. But he's also said he doesn't condone the KKK or, or neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, inside of, of, let's say, white nationalist circles, there, throughout the entire campaign, he made an earlier some, – some of your listeners will recall during the 2016 campaign, he uh, was a little bit hesitant in distancing, distancing himself from David Duke. There has been a discourse in, in these circles about Donald – Trump's commentary on them and there is widespread expectation that he wouldn't come out and say, I'm a white nationalist, I support neo-Nazis. But they they see things like the the equivalency, the moral equivalency that that Trump was suggesting between uh, white nationalists and, and uh, anti-Fa, far-left demonstrators. They see that as correctly in my mind as, as marking a fundamental break from the status quo in American public politics, especially at the presidential level. So they don't, they don't, they don't need anything more than that 
uh, to feel like they've made some some significant progress with this president. Has has this sh- this shift taken place just since the rise of Donald Trump, or has it been years in the making, and we're just seeing it come to a to a head right now? It has. If if you look globally, you could you could talk about a change throughout really the past decades, especially uh, if we focus on Europe. That's where we have seen uh, anti-immigrant populist parties, nationalist parties, uh, slowly taking spaces in the national parliaments throughout throughout the continent. Uh, but Donald Trump, the election of Trump was was uh, ab- absolutely a, a watershed for them. That that was when the, you know the most powerful uh, person in the world becomes someone who is not as obviously opposed to their agenda as previous presidents had been. So uh, that that in Brexit uh, certainly certainly seemed to be a pinnacle of this this movement and it energized these circles in ways that they haven't been energized in their lifetime. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking to Professor Ben Teitelbaum. He's a professor at CU Boulder who studies cultural changes in white nationalist movements. You mentioned Europe. Uh, you know, a lot of the media attention has been focused on white supremacists here in the U.S., like David Duke, the Grand Wizard of the KKK, Richard Spencer. Uh, you note that Daniel Freeberg uh, also joined the rally in Charlottesville. He's an anti-immigrant activist from Sweden. Why did his presence at the rally in Charlottesville strike you? Well, within – and we have to follow his story, uh, Donald Freeberg's story within Sweden. When I, when I talk about a history of uh, white nationalist activists trying to get away from a skinhead stereotype, Donald Freeberg has been one of the most prolific and, and successful agents of that, that change. The, uh, the mainstreaming. Yes, the mainstreaming. Um, if we look at white nationalism today, we see that it is a scene defined in part by uh, online media, by online encyclopedias, by the production of literature, uh, the wholesaling of books, translation of literature, also an internationalization with, with actors from different parts of the world speaking to each other. Uh, and a lot of the large projects that are out there today, um, if they're social media, if they're chat forum, if, if, if they're publishers, Donald Freebay has been a part of all of it. He, he has been at the very vanguard of this uh, effort to, to change the image of a white nationalist from a young hooligan to an educated, well-spoken, uh, intelligent ideologue, thinker, political actor. So him being there in Charlotte, standing with the, the, the thugs, hooligans, etc., is, yes. is, is a change for you. I would never have expected to have seen something like that, let's say in Sweden. Uh, and it's not as though it's, – it's, it's important to note it's not as though he did it without reservation. He still did not show up in Charlottesville dressed in, in combat boots and a bomber jacket. He, he showed up dressed as he always does, uh, neat in a suit, uh, looking, looking upstanding. But, uh, but this – that type of union, uh, that, that to me speaks to a relaxed position toward, uh, toward these actors that had been the utmost antithesis of everything that he was trying to do. Now, your, your Wall Street Journal op-ed uh, talks about this. I, I find it interesting, because, though, because you're a, uh, an ethnomusicologist. <laughs> what, what gives you this uh, knowledge to, to talk about a political movement when it's ethnomusicology that you, you study? <laughs> so, well, eth- ethnomusicology is the study of music and culture. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in music and politics. Uh, and music is often relevant to political Activism, uh, you know, various political parties use music. We all we all know that, 
but it's especially relevant to the study of white nationalism. I actually consider myself first and foremost a scholar of, of the radical right in Europe and anyone who's a scholar of the radical right must be part ethnomusicologist. Uh, the, that scene, especially before it had any political power, especially before it was in parliaments anywhere, it was a music scene. It was a music scene first and foremost. The biggest celebrities were musicians. The biggest organizations were record labels. The largest gatherings were concerts, not political rallies. Uh, and all of that has started to change somewhat recently. Uh, but uh, but music has been central to it. So are you seeing the same shift in music that you're seeing in, let's say, the, the clothing and the outward appearance of, of these? Definitely. Definitely. We've seen that uh, in the past decade, more more so in Europe than the United States, I, I would say. But but since, say, skinhead style was centered so much around a genre of punk and metal music, often called white power, uh, a lot of people wanting to reform this scene from the inside came up with new music to try and rebrand themselves. So we've seen a lot of folk music. Uh, even you might be surprised to know rap and reggae have become genres that, that white nationalists have, have turned to to try and uh, reframe who they are. But in general, also as they've gotten more power, as they felt more and more welcomed in the mainstream, music making as a whole has also started to recede. Uh, there's more and more emphasis on literature, on forming political parties and actually gaining formal formal uh, access to avenues of power. And, and, and I just have to go back to that fact that gaining more power is is that a, like, a, a, again, a false equivalency. Are they truly gaining more power in society today uh, across across the world? You, you would have to you would have to say that there there has been some sort of change. Uh, if we take a website like Breitbart, which is uh, which is widely read. Uh, and it's and not claims white to be the, nationalist. The, the, the alt right. Yes, that has in, in various ways claimed claimed to belong to the alt right. Uh, they're not white nationalists. There there still are fundamental differences between a, a site like that and let's say uh, some of the sites that Donna Freeberry has has promoted. But they're much closer. Um, it's a slight difference, and and we'd be wrong to think that civil society outside of those consuming Breitbart uh, is is much more receptive. But it's a little step. And mind you, Nathan, this that little step is momentous for uh, a cause, circles, for movements that have experienced themselves, even relished a position as being the most marginalized, the most hated political force in the Western world since World War II. So any 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 little gesture toward normalization means a lot. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Ben Teitelbaum is professor of ethnomusicology at CU Boulder. His opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal is titled White Nationalists Give Up Trying to Be Respectable. He is also author of Lions of the North, Sounds of the New Nordic Radical Nationalism. This is Colorado Matters. Sitting at a bar, Carl Christian Krumpholtz got a call he'd been expecting, news that his father was dead. That's how Krumpholtz opens his latest comic book, An Introduction to Alcohol. In it, the Denver comic artist explores the complex relationship he had with his alcoholic father and his own experiences with drinking. Carl, welcome to the program. Hi, great to be here. People may recognize your name from your Westward comic series, uh, but this is an autobiographical comic that you wrote, and your father's death several years ago was your motivation to write it. Why was that? Well, it stemmed from um, a lot of 
issues I was having. I would do a weekly comic uh, called uh, 30 Miles of Crazy, which this story sprung out of. And 30 Miles of Crazy is a lot of tales of the city, and most of these uh, tales happen in bars. So what? in addition to my uh, father's passing, I started thinking about my own relationship with bars, and it went back to my father and my youth where he would, you know, I was a young child of like eight, ten years old, and he on my way home from baseball practice, he would like, let's stop and have a drink. And uh, so I grew up a lot in bars. <laughs> How did it feel being eight years old in a bar? Did you did you understand the significance of that at the time? Well, or? at the time, I no, I didn't because it was just a big smoky room uh, that didn't smell that great. You know, it was a bar. It was only later that, um, with my own experiences with alcohol, that I understand going, oh, uh, you know, I had a crash course in this when as a child. There are. There are some pretty pretty heavy scenes in, yes. in this comic book. Uh, your your dad acted differently when he drank at a bar versus when he drank at home, didn't he? Yes. Uh, when you're at a bar, it is a it's a full on social. You're talking with your friends, the other bar flies, the old guys at the end of the bar. You're talking about sports, the news of the day. When you're drinking at home, it was more um, thoughtful, I guess, and you just kind of let thoughtful. I don't well, typically think you, of you you. Get into your own head. You're not you're not distracted by being social, and so that was a definitely a different experience. And a lot of the uh, evil things came out. Your father hits you uh, oh, yeah. uh, on occasion there, and of and, course, and that that is a powerful scene in the book. Yes, uh, um, I mean, he had anger issues. You know, I've also struggled with anger issues that, you know, I keep in check when I was like, oh, you're acting like your father, you know. So that is something. Oh, people uh, say that to you or, or you hear that. That has been said to me in the past, Who people who I've grown up with that I've keep that, kept it in check. And and like we mentioned, this book isn't just the focus of you and your father. It's also about your own drinking as right. well. Uh, you illustrate the first time you tasted alcohol. You didn't like it too much. Um, well, I really, I mean, that was my first time having like hard alcohol. Yeah. Um, How old were you? Oh, I was 12, 13 years old, you know, mix of playing Dungeons and Dragons and a bottle of cheap scotch. And it didn't sit well with you? No, it did not sit well in the least. Um, it, again, at that age, you really don't know about alcohol. So again, it's like another crass course on going, this is what not to do. And, and then your first experience with being drunk as well wasn't too fun of an experience. Oh, no, it was not at all, you know, with uh, the vomiting and stuff like that. So, so, so <laughs> what made you think you, you wanted to continue to reach for this bottle? What, what makes this bar culture fascinating to you that you write about in Westward and you, and you, you illustrate? Oh, it's uh, uh, I enjoy bar culture, you know, even after all the, that experiences, uh, good and bad. You know, you keep going back to it. After I had my first drink and uh, incident in a book, I was like, oh, I'm never going to drink again, which, of course, my father was like, oh, yeah, don't 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 make promises you can't keep. It's the, the social element, uh, the meeting of people, the meeting of ideas and just the entertainment. And plus, you know, booze is good. <laughs> To, to, toward the end of, of, of your dad's life, mm-hmm. y- you talked to your dad on the phone, but 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 not very frequently, uh, and you didn't get back to your hometown of Philadelphia very much. Uh, what was it like going back to the to the funeral uh, for for his after his death? Well, the last time I saw my father was uh, about six months before he passed, and my wife and I 
were in um, in Philadelphia for the holidays, and he was fine. I mean, he struggled with illnesses for months, years. But as soon as uh, I got back uh, to here to Denver, that six months went. He went downhill quickly. Um, and he was sober at the time, correct? He did. Oh yeah, he he sober. went sober in the um, early nineties. Though he did drink like near beer and stuff like that. You can't, you know, once you like it, you got to taste it. Yeah. Um, but um, it was hard. Um, I was not there for, I did not see his decline. I only heard about it through my family and infrequently talking to him from the hospital. Um, and it was hard because I did not know what to expect. I mean, it was my first parent passing away. And so when I, my wife, Kelly, and I um, walked into the funeral home. I had no idea. I did not know what he would look like. My uh, sisters warned me because they were there for everything. Um, but – and it, it was a hard experience looking down into a casket and seeing, you your know, father. your father, you know, laying there and totally unrecognizable from the last time I saw him because the illness had, uh, you know, ravaged his body. But – the good thing was my family, um, we don't take much things seriously. And my mom started cracking jokes. So, and that just lightened the mood, broke the ice, and helped me get through all that, in addition to my wife, Kelly. There's another scene in the comic. You're at the bar with your father. You ask him if you want to go home, and it smells weird inside. You don't like it. And your dad replies with this quote. Yes, it does smell smell bad. Yeah. But if you're anything like me, kid, you'll find yourself in these kinds of places a lot. Was your father's prediction accurate? It, it seems like it is. You're participating. <laughs> it was, it in... was quite accurate. Um, though, since there's no smoking in bars anymore, you know, the smells slight, slightly better. But yes, it is. Uh, I know quite a few bars along in Denver and along Colfax Avenue. What was it like? Um, experiencing re-experiencing the childhood that that you that you had with your father while working on this comic especially after his passing and and seeing that well it was hard the two um since it's told in a series of vignettes in um several of the vignettes were quite hard to write and illustrate uh my father reacting to the loss of the eagles game or they say in eagles game (laughs) um that was a hard one to draw, as well as, uh, as you mentioned before, my, my first taste with alcohol, um, when I just kind of went for it, and that was utterly hard to draw. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny experience, but uh, not from my end. <laughs> Writing and illustrating this comic book, you've had to face the memories of your father head on. Do you miss him? That's a, that's a very hard question. Um, and I... Still, even after I finish the comic, I do not know uh, if I miss him. Um, would I like to sit down and talk to him uh, to deal with, like, you know, kind of like, hey, what do you think of this? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I would love to talk to him again. Um, but, you know, that's not going to happen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Denver graphic illustrator Carl Christian Krumpholtz. His autobiographical comic is an introduction to alcohol. It's part of his series, 30 Miles of Crazy. You can see pages from it at cprnews.org. The Pikes Peak Marathon is this weekend, and it has an important place in U.S. history. 
1959, Arlene Piper ran it and became the first woman to officially complete a marathon in the U.S. But her feat went largely unnoticed because most of the attention goes to two women who finished at the Boston Marathon nearly a decade later. At that time, Boston was a male-only race, so one of the women snuck in, the other hid her gender by using her initials to register. But as Karen Given of WBOR in Boston reports, Arlene Piper was always the first. Unlike Boston, the Pikes Peak Marathon never actually barred women from racing. When it began in the mid-1950s, women had been climbing Pikes Peak for at least 100 years and had been running official races up the 13-mile trail to the top since 1936. Pikes Peak has two races, the Ascent, a 13.3-mile trail run with an elevation gain of more than 7,000 feet, and the Marathon, which climbs up the mountain and back down again. Race director Ron Ilgen says organizers always expected women to run the Ascent. They didn't think any woman would have the strength necessary to run back down. In 1959, Arlene Piper proved them wrong. And how did Arlene do? Well, she finished in a little over nine hours, which considering back then with no aid stations per se, running in dime store tennis shoes, she did quite well. That's a very respectable time. On August 7, 1959, the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph noted that Arlene Piper had completed the marathon, but... But the big excitement with the crowd on the summit was the arrival there of Kathy Piper, Mrs. Piper's nine-year-old daughter, who set out just to accompany her mother part of the way, but who ran clear to the summit in five hours, 44 minutes, 52 seconds. The crowd almost raised the sky with its cheers for the little girl. I don't think anybody at the time really realized, look, this first woman to ever run a marathon, this is an amazing thing. Nobody might ever have noticed, if not for the controversy in Boston, first with Roberta Gibb finishing the race as a bandit, an unregistered runner in 1966, and then with Catherine Switzer's famous finish in 1967. That's when folks at Pikes Peak started saying, Well, wait, we already have a woman that's done this. But by then, Arlene Piper had moved away, and as Ron Elgin says just disappeared into obscurity. Nobody knew where Arlene had gone, or even if she was aware of what she had done. A decade went by, and another, and another couple decades after that. Ron Ilgen came on as race director in 2002, and he tried to find Arlene. He even hired a private detective who came up blank. Nobody thought we'd ever find her, or that honestly she was even still alive. Ron had almost given up hope, but he went ahead with planning a gala event to celebrate 50 years of women running the Pikes Peak Marathon. With less than two weeks to go, he decided to take one last try. And that's when we placed the ad in the local paper, Find Arlene Piper, $300 reward. I was reading the newspaper, the local newspaper. Linda Vixie is an amateur genealogist living in Colorado Springs. She says she doesn't often read the sports section, but the ad appeared on a Tuesday, and the weekday paper wasn't very thick. It was right beneath another little article describing the catching of a a record-setting catfish in Colorado, and it, it happened to catch my eye. 
Linda sent me a copy of the ad. It offered a $250 reward, not the $300 that Ron remembers. But no matter. She took it on like a bulldog and just kept at it. Linda started at the local library. She was hoping that maybe the family had stayed long enough for Kathy to graduate high school. But no such luck. They weren't here very long. But Arlene's husband, who had run with her, had a very unusual name. His father's name was Walter, and his mother's name was Helen, and so they named him Wallen. Linda documented her search for a genealogy magazine, and it reads like a mystery novel, with false leads and dead ends and calls to other women named Arlene Piper, who, it turns out, never lived in Colorado and never ran a marathon. But before long, Linda found a family in California that fit the description of Arlene and her children. Linda knew that Arlene and Wallen had owned a women's gym. At that time, it was called a health studio in Colorado Springs. And after some Googling, she noticed that the youngest son in this family had been named after a 1940s bodybuilder. With that, Linda Vixie was sure she had found Arlene Piper, who was now Arlene Stein. But it turns out finding her was the easy part. Linda called all the numbers she could find for Arlene and her now adult children. She even searched for the phone numbers of Arlene's neighbors, hoping one of them would put her in touch. I could see a picture of Arlene's house at Google Maps, and I just wanted to, I wanted so badly just to walk through that screen and knock on that door. Finally, Linda left a message with the son who had been named after the bodybuilder. He called back. And on the Monday before the Saturday event, Linda Vixie reached Arlene Piper Stein on her cell phone. I got to be the one that, to tell her that she was the first woman in the United States to run a marathon. She had no idea. It just just blew me away. I said, I'm the first? I just sat there in shock. I said, really? You know, I just, I couldn't believe it. Linda and Arlene talked on the phone for a while, and Linda got to be the first to hear Arlene's story from Arlene herself, and it was a good one. It starts in the 1950s when Arlene and Wallen moved to Colorado Springs to take over a health studio. Arlene's health studio, because it was a woman's health studio. It was just for women. And did you really walk around town in gold stretch pants? Yes, I did. Gold stretch pants and, and a purple top. Oh, yes. Our car was even painted gold with purple on it. So uh, everywhere I went, it was, hey, Arlene, Arlene. Wallen had people call him Mr. Arlene. It was good for business. And one day, while on a walk with his wife, he mentioned to Arlene that if she were to run the marathon, that might be good for business, too. Arlene says she always believed women should do what they want to do. So she bought a pair of tennis shoes at the dime store and started running laps at the local college. And the three children sat in the middle of the track with their toys, and I ran a lot there. And once a week on Sundays, I went uh, up to bar camp and back to get used to the altitude and all that. Arlene ran the ascent in 1958. But the goal was the marathon, so she kept training. It got closer and closer. I was excited about doing it. Do you want me to tell you about the day of the race? I can't imagine anyone saying no to that question. That day, there was 12 of us at the starting line. There was another lady, my daughter, myself, and I was 29. 
and uh, the others were men. It was a beautiful day. Couldn't have asked for a better day. Sunshiny. I had my short shorts on that we used to wear back then and a white blouse. Tied in a knot. That's how we did things back in the 50s. And my tennis shoe from the dime store. And off I went. Arlene says she didn't run that much on the way up. It was more of a fast hike with her husband and her nine-year-old daughter. But all that training at altitude started to pay off. Men would come there from other states not knowing that they wouldn't be able to breathe too good, so they're <laughs> And every time Arlene and her husband and her daughter would pass one of those men, Arlene would say, Isn't this a beautiful day for a race? And go run them past them. My husband told me to do that. <laughs> the newspaper account says that when Arlene got to the top, she waved over her shoulder at the crowd without missing a step. That's how Arlene remembers it, too. Wallen and nine-year-old Kathy and the other woman who ran the ascent all got in cars and went back down the mountain. But Arlene kept going. At the finish line, I, I felt pretty good. I, I'm sure I was a little tired, but I wasn't exhaust, completely exhausted. I, I lost all my toenails a few days later. Every single toenail fell off. And did you ever run another marathon? And never, never, never. One was enough, thank you. <laughs> Ron Ilgen says it's not Arlene's dime store tennis shoes or how she taunted the men during the race that makes this story special. It's the fact that for 50 years, Arlene had a place in running history, a very important place in running history, and she didn't even know it. The night before Arlene and Kathy were set to arrive for the 50th anniversary celebration, Ron spoke at an event for the Peak Busters, a woman's organization that supports runners in the marathon and ascent. Linda Vixie was there. It was very dramatic. You know, he got up and he said, you know, we've been looking for her for four years and we've even hired a private investigator. He went on for quite a while and then he said... We found her, and she's going to be here tomorrow. I, I, I saw women who I later learned were world-class runners wiping tears from their eyes. Why do you think that moment was so emotional? I mean, I'm, I'm not a runner. This is something that's really important to all of them, and there's a real sisterhood to, to realize that the woman who just, sorry, who started it all was going to be there, that they would, they would get to meet her. And they did get to meet her. And better yet, she got to meet them. She just had this look of total amazement all race weekend as, you know, people were coming up for autographs, as uh, TV crews were filming her, as she was the, uh, officiating the start of the race. You could just tell it was still very hard for her to comprehend being just pulled out of obscurity like this and then all of a sudden the, the queen of the event just treated like royalty. That story comes from reporter Karen Given in WBUR's Only a Game. The Pikes Peak Marathon is this weekend and Arlene Piper will be there. Every year since 2009, she's been at the starting line to see the runners off.
And that's our show. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, managing producer Rachel Estabrook, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Our audio engineers are Matt Hers and Michael Hughes. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. Connect with us on Facebook, CPR News, and email us, of course. Click contact at the top of CPRnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on the website. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.